Welcome, ghouls and goblins, to the annual George Sanders Show Halloween Spectacular. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about two films from the 60s um, that are ostensibly horror films, also sci-fi, basically sci-fi horror films. Um, one of them from 1965, which is the year of the year for us, um, Planet of the Vampires from director Mario Bava. And 1968's Goki Body Snatcher from Hell from director Hajimi Sato. Um, and we're also going to pick our essential cinematic vampire. We're going to talk about Maureen O'Hara, who passed away recently. And as uh, far as we know, has not risen from the dead. As far as we know. As far as we know. Though if anyone could. <laughs> our sources are still, you know, we're still waiting on reports from some of our sources. But... Um, yeah, and, so, and, all, and all kinds of fun stuff will also be happening uh, on this show. Uh, so, Sean, are you ready for Halloween? Is the house decorated? The house is decorated. Nice. The, the kids are very excited. How many skulls do you have? Uh, we, we just have one skull, but we have lots of skeletons and, and wraiths and uh, ghosts and lots of things. We went to the store and we spent way too much money on decorations. The kids really like scary decorations. Yeah. I got them like these giant spiders and they keep hiding them around the house to like terrify Kim and I. It's, it's pretty fun. <laughs> and uh, what kind of candy do you have lined up? Uh, Kim's moved on to candy. I haven't, uh, I'm not in charge of them. Oh, you, so you haven't gone through the candy. I've already eaten like a half bag of Airheads. No, she, she buys me my own supply of candy and keeps it separate <laughs> from the Halloween candy. I see. I see. Apparently Airheads are the most popular candy in Washington State. I saw that, um, which my household may be uh, responsible for part of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I got I got Lindy hooked on Airheads. Like, was it last Halloween or the Halloween before? She had never had an Airhead, and we were getting Halloween uh, candy. And I said, "Oh, we got to get a bag of Airheads." And she said, "I've never even had one of those." And since then, it's like an addiction. Like, she'll buy like a big bag of them, and then eat like half of it, and then tell me, "You have to get this out of the house. I can't have any more." And then, like, two weeks later, have, like, a hankering for it and then go out and get more. Yeah, I think I, I've maybe had, like, one or two packages in my life. I don't know. It, I mean, it's just pure sugar. Yeah, they were not They were not common when I was growing up in my area I think area they were Washington. a little later. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. I, I, I tend to stick to, like, the, the traditional uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, little mini Snickers, uh, Skittles. Skittles, like yeah, yeah. Um, Skittles are now vegan. Uh, really? Yeah, as of 2011, which mm-hmm. I just found out like two days ago. So there's also Skittles in the house now. Nice. <laughs> yeah. It's basically a sugar bomb. This household yeah, yeah. is a sugar bomb. I don't actually I, eat I like, candy. I, I like the mini candy bars, like the old, like the, the like the mixed bag where you get like the Mr. Good bars and the Hershey's and the Hershey's right. with almonds. I, I like those. Well, uh, I am uh, I am a boring old man. You are a boring old man. Uh, well, the final Halloween question for you. Uh, we know how many skulls you have. We know kind of what your candy situation is like. Uh, what are you going to be for Halloween? I have a, a very scary mask that I'm going to wear. As, as you walk down the street with the kids? Yes. It, can you see through it? Can you breathe? Yes, yes. Okay. What, uh, what is the, what is it's, the visage? It's, it's, just, it's like a, a generic demon. It's like a, like a blue scary face with horns on it. It took me a really long time to get both kids to agree on it. Like my, my daughter wanted, you know, she kept trying on like this, all the, she kept grabbing all the scariest masks in, in the party city. It's like, wear this, wear this. And I put it on and the, the two year old will go, no. 
So I, it, took, it took me like 20 minutes to convince him to let me get anything. He just didn't want me to have anything at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally he, he, he approved of, of this one. I don't That's know why. Good. So, uh, is Kim going trick or treating with you guys? Yes. And what is she going to be? Uh, I got her like a, like a kind of like Harlequin mask. Just, uh, Ooh, kinky. Yeah. Like a eyes wide <laughs> shut kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> we have a masquerade that we're going to later, later in the year. Oh, really? So it'll, it'll work for that as well. Are you going to wear your demon mask to the masquerade? That would be awesome. It would, it would be, but I, I don't think I will be allowed. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that that sounds good. I, yeah. I look forward to uh, hearing the fallout of this Halloween. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of candy that we are going to struggle to keep from the children. Right. <laughs> um, well, what do you say we get this party started with a, a clip from Planet of the Vampires? You're, you're not going to tell me what costume you got for your dog? My dog, uh, he's candy security. Uh, oh. Every year, uh, he, he got it at Target a couple years ago. Um, and it's got little um, slots on the back of it. So you could put like um, lollipops and stuff in it. And then it glows in the dark and says candy security on it. Uh, it's a very important day. It's he's, he's He works hard that day. Uh, he earns his keep. You actually have a costume for your dog? I was just kidding. No, I got a costume for my dog. <laughs> All right, I, very I, I don't want to hear any more. Let's, <laughs> let's hear the clip from the movie. <laughs> it's adorable. Let's prepare for a landing, Brad. Okay. In a 40G gravity atmosphere, strange thing happens to man's body and mind. <laughs> Barry Sullivan and Norma Bengel take you into the most fantastic science fiction adventure ever filmed. Emergency! Emergency! Conditions desperate. Little chance of survival. Help us. Mark, look! What have you got? The galleon. Bert, get me a fix on this right now. Wes, Brad, controls. Planet of the Vampires. Harboring a form of life worse than death. Planet of the bloodless. Creatures who take men's bodies, but attack like vampires. I'll tell you this, if there are any intelligent creatures on this planet, they're our enemies. In this outer space world, the living dead try to escape into life. <laughs> Salas. No, just his body. And I'm just one of many beings on this planet. And we're fighting to survive. It's imperative that our race continue to exist. We arranged for several of you to kill each other so that we could take over your bodies. You are our last chance. No, never. We'll all of us give up our lives to save our own race. <laughs>
Okay, that's a clip from Planet of the Vampires, directed by Mario Bava uh, from 1965. Uh, it's a co-production between Italy, Spain, and the U.S., um, and the U.S. imposed the title Planet of the Vampires on it, uh, which is uh, kind of an ill-fitting title because there aren't any vampires in the movie. Uh, they're more like zombies. Uh, a, a spaceship is uh, traveling through the galaxy, and uh, it gets this signal um, kind of a distress signal and they, and they land on this, you know, unknown planet and, uh, they discover, well, first of all, it takes over some people on the ship. Um, and then they discover that there was another civilization that had come out there to find this distress beacon, uh, a long time ago and they had died. And it turns out that the creatures on this planet, whom we don't see, uh, except when they are taking over the bodies of the, uh, astronauts uh that they're you know planning on using those bodies to get them off the planet which is dying and get them anywhere but there um it's it's a very cheaply made movie uh which is kind of bava's style uh and his style is being stylish with uh, a small budget and uh it's it's got a lot of you know kind of creaky sets uh you know some you know, very colorful lighting and um, some kind of fun uh, makeup and effects and stuff like that. And uh, it's also kind of a precursor for Alien. A lot of people talk about this as a uh, a huge influence on Ridley Scott's film uh, from about a decade and a half later. Although I think Scott said that he hadn't seen it when uh, he made Alien. Do you believe I, him? Uh, I think... Uh... I think the the story is that uh, Alien is kind of based on John Carpenter's Dark Star, which was written with Dan O'Bannon, who also wrote Alien. And uh, Carpenter and O'Bannon said they had not seen Planet of the Vampires when they mm -hmm. did Dark Star. So, but there are similarities. Yeah, many yes. similarities. Yeah, I think. I get I get the feeling that uh, kind of watching watching both these movies I think have have some similarities to to Alien. I get the feeling like Alien was just in the air in the late '60s and '70s, and it was just waiting to be made. Like it was like inevitable that Alien would come about. It was just like out there in the culture. It just needed to be put into a final form. I actually I totally agree with you on that because um, you know there's so many precursors to alien from mm -hmm. you know the the decades before it's not just planet of the vampires um and i think people kind of can just cherry pick which one they want to say influenced alien the most or whatever but uh one of the most famous uh doctor who episodes um when, uh with tom baker from 74 i think ark in space um one of his first adventures of the doctor totally alien like five years mm -hmm. before the movie came out you know so it's not it's not like this this idea was uh, totally original in the first place, but um, but you do see little hints of, of of it play out in that movie, which was more of a you know took itself a little more seriously, was bigger budget, um, and and it kind of all those kind of elements coalesced uh, to make that movie the the success that it is. Yeah, and Alien Alien is so good. It's such it's such a great movie that like comparing anything any of its precursors to it does those precursors a, a disservice. Yeah. Okay. It, 
Well, and another thing that I was thinking about, maybe more in terms of uh, the, the second film we're talking about today, but but both of these really is, and we're going to talk about this uh, in two episodes, but the, um, the effect that Star Wars had on the science fiction genre or, or you know, the, the what people think of as science fiction yeah. um, by, by putting this kind of, you know, science fiction pre-Star Wars was for the most part, uh, you know, kind of plodding along these kind of, you know, um, I mean, su- successfully or not successfully depends on, you know, the film, but um, there wasn't this swashbuckling element to it that you get with Star Wars or a lot of, you know, crazy uh, dog fights in space and all that kind of stuff, which is, the the arc of Star Wars is so long that it is influenced so much that's come after it that when you watch a pre Star Wars science fiction film, it's a totally different type of movie. Yeah, this kind of combination of like sci fi and horror elements that you get in Planet of the Vampires, and and you also get in in you know other like earlier films, like a lot of the like the fifties sci fi stuff really mixes uh, kind of creature horror with with science fiction. Um, uh, Star Wars kind of mixes the sci-fi elements with with adventure serials, with with westerns and samurai movies, and and like old Buck Rogers serials, which is a which is a different direction for the sci-fi film. It's almost a different genre altogether. Like it's hard to say that Star Wars and Planet of the Vampires are really the same genre. I mean, they both right. take place with they both have spaceships. That's but exactly really, what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. But one is like uh, one is a horror film, and one is an adventure film. I argued a long, a long time ago in a like a, a totally random aside in a paper in college that sci-fi isn't really a genre. It's, I, it's it's a setting. Right. Yeah. The differences between Star Trek and Star Wars are so vast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They they're not even remotely close to one another in any fa- facet, yeah. except for like you said, it, taking place in space. Yeah, this one, uh, like in addition to looking forward to, to Alien, uh, I think uh, there's a lot of Star Trek in this as well. And uh, just kind of the the kind of quasi-military nature of of the ship and their, their mission out there exploring and the kind of camaraderie that the different crews have. It's very reminiscent of the kind of stuff that, that Star Trek would be doing uh, two years after this. And also uh, uh, Forbidden Planet has that same kind of vibe. Yeah, although I will say, um, and we can maybe dive into this movie um, a little bit more now. With, with saying saying that, I think there are things that this misses that those two things get really well. Um, like like in terms of Star Trek, um, the great thing about Star Trek is those philosophical conversations and the you know the differences between Spock and and you know human thought and all those kinds of things and and it's got this it's it's got a lot more going there are a lot of more ideas going on in in a typical star trek episode um and then forbidden planet for me is just a lot more fun uh, than than planet and i think it's a better movie than planet of the vampires Um, yeah i I think i did not really respond to this movie much at all i think um without spoiling it right away um, but I think both movies this week, I think the last five minutes of them are easily the best parts of them. Um, but getting to that moment, particularly in this one, uh, was kind of a slog. I think I think uh, I think both of these movies uh, and, and Planet of the Vampires especially are really good at, at atmosphere and this kind of, of sense of, of, of dread uh, and uh, 
not so much terror, but but just dread and uh, and isolation um, that you that you might get in this kind of scenario. But what they're what they're not good at, and what I think uh, what I think you're getting at with the Star Trek comparison is that there's not really much of interest in the characters. Yes, like I think uh, I think the Barry Sullivan character, the the captain, is an interesting figure, but he doesn't have anyone to play off of him in the supporting cast. Uh, the next the next uh, crew member that we see the most is uh, is normal ben, Norma Bengel, who is the uh, the redhead, and right. she doesn't really. Sonia. Yeah, there are like hints of a character there, but it, it there's not really any. She doesn't really have anything to do. Um, for the most part, in the narrative, uh, they're they're mostly just kind of responding to to the actions, and there's no like debate or argument among the crew members, or even something like you'd see in uh, in the the Howard Hawks Christian Nyby uh, thing from Another World, where you have oh, all of the, all of these scientists, and they're all you know constantly discussing and arguing what they're going to do with and this so with this bizarre situation yeah. yeah and there's like little moments where you have like a little romance between two of the characters and it's it's all developed as the whole world is built and and what what planet of the vampires does is like it it uh, it has the setting for a world but it doesn't populate it and uh, that might be because all of the actors are speaking a different language like right. literally uh they're all saying they're it's a international cast it's one of these like 60s super low budget international co-productions and all of the cast members like Barry Sullivan is speaking English and Normal Bengal is speaking Portuguese. Right. And they're just saying their lines and their natural nat in their uh, native tongue, their native uh, 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 language. And nobody has any idea what anybody else is saying. <laughs> right. Which yeah. makes it hard to develop like a character relationship. Like if, like if uh, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner were speaking two different languages, you would not have, uh, interesting character interactions in Star Trek. Right. And yeah, I agree with you. The, the, the atmosphere is probably the best part of it. Um, I think, unfortunately, the the movie spends too much time, particularly in the beginning, on the ship um, before venturing out onto this alien planet. And um, I think easily the best um, sequences in the film um, take place out among you know this well actually the best the best one is when they go on the alien ship with the giant i mean they're like 15 foot tall skeletons that are you yeah. know just rotting there um that is really cool stuff and and um more of that would have really kept me uh, engaged but particularly the first half of this is so much of repetition of like what are we going to do now? We're going to go over here now. Okay, now we're here, but we need to do this and then it's like that you know it's it's just uh it's kind of inert, despite the constant movement. Yeah, there's not uh, the the enemy is unseen for so long, and so many of the the uh, the the uh, the explorers, I guess, uh, their actions don't make any sense because they 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 figure out that there's like something out there that is like making people kill each other, or that there's something out there that's like freaky and they want to stay away from it but they keep standing outside their ship to like guard instead of just going inside the ship and locking the door. Well, and then also whenever there's uh they think they suspect that the threat may be on board whether you know it, if it's taking the form of another uh person remember yeah. uh 
they say, why don't you go lie down in the other room? And then they don't bother to guard them. They're like, yeah. they send two guys that are clearly under the spell of these uh, aliens. And they right. say, hey, go take a nap. And then those, and then but, they go. But, but one of them. you guard the other one. Right. <laughs> when they <laughs> both like, showed up together. <laughs> that's like the dumbest plan in the world. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that kind of, you know, uh, foolishness. Planting kind of stupid, yeah, stupid stuff going on. So it, it, that, that makes it doubly hard to care for any of these characters when they make stupid decisions. Yeah. And that's, and that's another thing that really distinguishes something like Forbidden Planet or, I mean, obviously alien is is that the the character actions they're they're not only built out of distinct personalities and characters that the that the actors bring to them but they also make sense yes like they're they are logical and that enough thought has been put into the scenario that that it all one thing uh proceeds logically after another and doesn't require you know that everyone has reasons for what they're doing that makes sense in the context of the story and that is not the case here. Yeah, and then the, and then to top it off, there's lots of ill-fitting leather. <laughs> uh, I think I think the leather is cool. I think I think the costumes are, are are cool. It's it's a really interesting kind of look. It's it's very distinctive. Uh, we I mean we kind of glossed over the the atmosphere, which is like the real strength of the film. Like there's there's so much emptiness, and and part of it is that there's like no budget for props. Uh, but like the interior of the spaceship is there's so much blank space in this, in this, in the ship. Like there's like little consoles and then like 20 feet between them. And it's, it's really unusual. It's like this cavernous space, which is, which is really neat. And then like the outside stuff is, uh, the the alien landscape is is very featureless there's like two rocks that they film like in multiple different angles and like multiply with mirrors and stuff and then the rest is just filled with smoke and it makes this kind of sense of of isolation and loneliness really it really comes across and i think i think that's really really terrific i do no like i said i think that that is the um the best part of the film uh, yeah. is definitely that the creating that atmosphere on such a low budget and and you know some of the effects are really good like seeing them um, in that alien landscape and and reading up later on it and and how um, they did that all in one shot like they couldn't do post work on it you know right. it was like you said it was smoke it literally smoke and mirrors to make mm -hmm. this happen um, and that's and that's really impressive and uh, and and some of the um the stuff on board the ship the technology that they use um when they're i'm not sure but when when uh they're communicating with the their colleague in the beginning who's on on a video monitor right. i'm pretty sure the guy is just on the other side of the box yeah i think uh, to them. one of the one of the guys on on letterbox from austin who saw it at the at the draft house mentioned that that yeah. it uh because they couldn't do post production, they just cut a hole in the set. <laughs> yeah, which that's super cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I like that stuff. I just, um, I, I mean, there's it, it, most of it just felt inert to me. And 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 like I said, when it gets to the end, and there's a there's a there's a bit of a twist. It's an obvious twist that, mm -hmm. to be honest, I still didn't. I wasn't prepared for when it happened. I was like, oh wow, okay, cool. Um, and then it goes into a really interesting kind of. Uh, climax uh, i i guess um yeah. it's pretty fun that part 
I wish yeah. there was more of that. But yeah, it's uh, it's good. It's fine. <laughs> I know. I I feel like we. I think I feel like we did like a, a bad job picking the movies this week because both of them are like they're they're fine. We don't, you know, they're not they're not bad, but they're not really all that great either. Like I, I we're like middling on on both of them. I think it's like yeah, the least both... interesting kind of of reaction you can have to a movie. <laughs> they're both pretty mediocre. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will say I love the poster for Planet of the Vampires. Oh, sure. It's really cool. Um, as as you know, those those exploitation and, and kind of B movies of the fifties and sixties uh, were. Um, you know, there's nothing on the poster that actually takes place in the movie, just like the title. But uh, man, it looks cool. <laughs> yeah, we we watched uh, another Corman movie not not too long ago. I actually didn't know this was, was this was AIP when we when we picked it. But uh, how how would you compare this to to X, the man with X ray eyes? I like this. I mean, I like uh, X more than this. Um, yeah. I thought there was more to chew on. I thought it went. I, I thought there was more to the story. You know, like this. This might have been better if it was a Star Trek episode where it was whittled down, cut in half, or something like that. Um, you know, you know, like when you know, like Star Trek, the motion picture is uh, expanding like a very basic Star Trek episode to like two plus hours in length or whatever. Yeah. Um, it, which makes it really dull. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe condensing it down to to this uh, to like a episode length may have been better for it. But uh, but I thought there was more to chew on with X. Um, I thought um, there was there were better performance like there was there was better chemistry with the the actors. You know, you had uh, Ray Milland and. Uh, uh, Ed, what, who, was it Ed Asner? Uh, I don't Not think Ed so. Asner. No, it was, uh, what's his face? Uh, Don yeah. Rickles. And Don Rickles, that's right, Don Rickles. That was, I love that, like the B, mm. the B story of that and all that, so. Yeah. Uh, how, would you, which would you prefer? Uh, they're, they're really very different, because, you know, I like, uh, I didn't like the kind of sprawling narrative of, of X. I wish it had been, I wished it had been more focused and a little more atmospheric. Like it just kind of jumping all over the place, kind of kind of bugged me. Like it wasn't spending enough time in any one place to really get a feel for kind of the the emotions of the the outlandish scenario. Whereas this is like the opposite problem, where whereas it's all the kind of feeling and not enough uh, brain. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I I might ultimately I I feel kind of about the same, but for opposite reasons. Right. I can hear that. Uh, you've seen another Bava, right? I've seen one other Bava, which is not a sci-fi film at all. It's uh, from 1974. Uh, it's called uh, Rabid Dogs, which is one of his last films. It's AKA Kidnapped. And it's uh, it's pretty intense. It's very good. It's more like a, a crime thriller. It's like... A, some criminals on the run kidnap some people. It's 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 similar somewhat to uh, the uh, Ida Lupino film noir, The Hitchhiker. Hitchhiker. Yeah, that movie's cool. But uh, you know, a lot kind of bloodier and, and more brutal, and it's good. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, hoping to watch uh, uh, Black Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been I've been trying to watch that for like several years. And just never have gotten around to it. That's his uh, witch movie from 1960, which uh, I think AIP distributed in the U.S., which kind of uh, got like started the 
the connection between Bava and AIP. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I haven't watched it. I, I am bad on this kind of Itali- Italian genre cinema in general. Like, I've only seen one Dario Argento film. I just, yeah. Other than uh, 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 Once Upon a Time in the West, which Dario Argento wrote. Or helped right, write. that's a, yeah, that's a stretch. <laughs> I think, did Mario Bava work on that too? I don't think It was so. like a bunch of... Uh, it was a oh, bunch of... Oh, it was yeah. uh, Bertolucci was yeah. the other one, yeah. Uh, yeah. So what about, what about you? Have you seen any other Mario Baba? No, I was going to this week. I was going to watch Blood and Black Lace, which I got. I had a huge stack of horror movies and I was going to try and do last year. We did a week of horror. Um, I know a lot of people do 31 days of horror and I, that, I don't have the stomach for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could do 31 days of Westerns, but I don't know about horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a, a we just had bad a bad string of luck with with it you know um one night i i had to work late and uh we just didn't get our act together and then one night we we're like okay we're gonna watch blood and black lace put it in and the dvd and I, you know it's a b movie so i should have just rolled with it but my partner in crime was was not really feeling it it was the dvd was really bad um it was really really bad quality dvd um and so we kind of gave up on it uh, within a couple of minutes um, and then we tried to watch the Duke after that. Um, and I wanted to like, I wanted to kill that child so badly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the kid just stayed alive for so long that I like had to abandon. I like literally couldn't take the Duke because that kid was so annoying. Anyway, I just, I totally s- screwed this whole seven days of horror. I watched like three movies and two of them were, uh, these ones, <laughs> So, but anyway, yeah, so I want to see Black Sunday. I want to see Black Sabbath, uh, Blood and Black Lace, all those kind of Bava ones. Um, but I just haven't got, like, like you, I haven't gotten around to it, you know. I'd like to because, the you know, uh, the stylish stuff I've seen, like the Argento stuff, um, as I've mentioned before, Suspiria is really cool. And um, uh, that one I talk about all the time that I can't think of right now. Uh, Deep Red. Deep Red. Deep Red um, are really great, so... Yeah, and I don't even know if it's like even proper to compare Bava and Argento. I just know that they were in Italy working at the same time. Right. They, they were made. They films. get they get spoken in the same yeah. breaths. So yeah. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's correct. Well, I really, I really am. This is one of the the areas of of cinema, like the really popular areas of cinema, that I'm almost wholly ignorant of. So yeah, so we should probably stop talking about it. Well, maybe we can do a Bava Argento show uh, next year or something like that. Yeah. Something. Uh, Argento would be would be cool. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's take a quick break here. We're going to listen to uh, some Ligeti. What was the title? Uh, this is uh, uh, one of uh, one of uh, Georgi Ligeti's uh, piano etudes. Uh, it's performed by Jeremy Denk. Uh, this is from book one. This is etude number one, uh, Disorder. And uh, this is the, an interesting thing that Wikipedia says about this. It, it's a, uh, a study in fast polyrhythms moving up and down the keyboard. The right hand plays only white keys, while the left hand is restricted to black keys. This separates the hands into two pitch class fields. The right hand music is diatonic. The left hand music is pentatonic. And this etude is dedicated to Pierre Boulet. So if you know what any of that means, here's what it sounds like. 
Or if you don't know what it means, here's what it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I guess we didn't say why we picked the the Ligeti. Um, it's basically just because Ligeti is spooky, and uh, and born in born where born in Transylvania. See, it yeah. all comes together. Yeah, but that's that's the only Ligeti we're playing on this. Um, uh, we're we're playing something else later. That's right. Yeah. Also, also vampire related though. Yes. 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 And it's not Vampire Weekend. No. <laughs> we we assure you. There will be no Vampire Weekend. Yes, uh, a message to our audience. It will not be Vampire Weekend. You may continue to listen to the show. Yes. <laughs> uh, so we have a piece of news that you wanted to bring up, Sean, this week. Uh, yeah, just uh, early, earlier today, uh, ESPN uh, pulled the plug on the Grantland website, which you apparently never have read, even though it was really terrific. And this kind of comes on the heels of the Dissolve uh, being shut down by Pitchfork earlier this year. Um, which, weirdly, given uh, uh, that Condé Nast re- recently purchased Pitchfork, I wonder if there was some kind of relation between the two, like if Condé Nast mm. didn't want the Dissolve, something like that. Uh, Interesting. But anyway, it's just it's another instance of a really good pop culture website that paid an incredible variety of writers uh, for their very good work um, not being a viable 
business concern on today's right. internet, uh, which is kind of sad. And we talked about the dissolve when it closed, and I don't think that we really have anything new to say about this other than that it sucks. Well, and also, I mean, I don't have cable, but uh, I hear ESPN's just terrible. ESPN is really bad now. <laughs> and uh, it, so it seems like this is, is, is a twofold story. ESPN does something stupid again. Yeah. ESPN, I, I, I used to watch ESPN all the time, like when I was in, in junior high. It was what I watched every day. And I learned a ton about sports from watching ESPN. And I can't imagine that anyone who watches ESPN today, any like 13-year-old, uh, will actually learn anything about sports by watching yeah. that channel. Like it's, it's, uh, it's just kind of appalling. I, I, I mean, we don't need to go into it because I don't think anybody cares. But yeah. I'm very curious what that means. Like I... I can't imagine like it seemed like such a, a a simple format. Well, like like with anything, like people this this is the thing. This is why everything that you loved uh dies. And it's because uh people in middle management have to change shit in order to justify their jobs. So even if it's not broken, like ESPN right. circa 1991 was not broken they had to keep changing it in order for right. for people to justify their salary. I, like I'm just, sports, I'm, sports, I'm, sports Center in 1991 was the perfect television show, right. and they made it terrible. It's unwatchable now. I, but that's my question. I mean, like, once again, you don't need to go into it, but I can't even imagine how you could change it. <laughs> like, like, what do they do? Like, how does it? It's just well, in the in the same sports. way that like MTV used to show music videos, right? Sports Center used to show sports. Oh, they don't just well. That's kind of silly. Yeah, they have like interviews and like dumb controversies and talking heads yeah. screaming at each other. It's oh, like how how CNN, you know, CNN at the same time was a terrific network. It reported news. If you turned on CNN at any like given random hour of the day, like at one o'clock in the afternoon in 1992, you would see news reports like Christian Amanpour out in the middle of nowhere reporting on uh, this kind of genocide that you didn't know anything about and wouldn't learn anywhere else. Uh, now you turn on CNN and you see stupid people yelling at each other. Right. Okay. Uh, it's, I get it. it's the same kind of thing. And, uh, it, you know, it happened in, in sports journalism, and, and Grantland wasn't just a, a sports website. It also covered, it had like a, a, a terrific uh, film department. Uh, they had like, they had Mark Harris, they had uh, 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 Wesley Morris, Alex Papadimos, a lot of, of really terrific writers and a lot of great freelancers writing there as well. And, you know, that, that stuff, there's just not, there's just not a market for it. Yeah. And it's really kind of depressing. And I don't know, I just, I think, uh, back in the, in the late nineties, in the, in the early two thousands, there was a lot of really good free sports writing on the internet. And one of its main targets was the terrible professional sports writing at, right. at newspapers. 
uh, you had you had sites like Baseball Prospectus that that started out, and and when they started, they were completely free, and there were people who had other jobs who were just writing about baseball, and they were writing about it so well that eventually, uh, you know, it grew into like an actual an actual like phenomenon in the world of baseball writing, and the the whole industry has kind of shifted in their direction. People like Nate Silver, who started there, are like national figures now. Right. Uh, I don't I don't see a similar shift happening in film writing, even though the the dynamic is exactly the same, where you have a bunch of people writing great stuff about film without getting paid for it, and a lot of their their primary targets were terrible people who were getting paid, but all of those people who are getting paid lost their jobs. Whereas because it was much easier for newspapers to lay off their film critics than it was to, for them to lay off their sports writers because sports news and sports writing is still a thing that people will read on the internet, whereas movie news and movie criticism are two separate things. You'd, they're not uh, part of the same ballgame. Like movie news is gossip and it's Oscar blogging, and that is still financially successful. Uh, but actual criticism is not. People don't want like, to read that. People don't like want to pay being, to read that. Right. That's like what's being peddled on this very show. Right. Well, between, between editorials from our editor in chief, who is the Andy Rooney of this whole story. Well, I mean, we're nobody wants to pay us for this. Good God, no. <laughs> And, and that's and no, that's, that's exactly and, and that's exactly the problem. And people who are, you know, several orders of magnitude better at this than we are, also don't get paid for it. Right. And and they won't. And and that is is really, you know, disheartening. Well, but that's what segues into the announcement now that this is the last episode of the George Sanders show that's going to focus on movies. Uh, we are going to start talking about uh, week nine of the NFL uh, starting next week on the show. Uh, this is now going to be called the Joe Namath show, and we're just going to talk about sports. No. <laughs> we're not going to do that. No, we're not, because that... I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about movies. I don't even, I, I couldn't even begin to talk about uh, that other stuff. So, yeah. Um, well. Yeah, so on that happy note, let's <laughs> talk about something else. Let's talk about, uh, you know, we, we were at the Vancouver Film Festival, uh, seeing a lot of, uh, you know, art house and international films and all that stuff. And, uh we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about American productions uh, this year or, you know, the big mainstream stuff coming down the pipe. Um, but recently you, you, you made a few trips to the uh, multiplex, Sean. So uh, let's do a, a round of what's Sean watching and talk about the fall movie season. Yeah, I watched, I watched five movies in eight days in the multiplex. And uh, how many times did you go to Hot Topic? And zero. <laughs> I went. Uh, I had. I had Missed opportunity, Sean. I had. I had one. One time, I had a break between movies, and I went to a Panera. And oh, I had, good. I had a salad and a sandwich. It was. It was mediocre. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was, it's not what Sean's eating, Sean. Sorry. Uh, so yeah, I saw. I saw a bunch of movies. I saw. I saw Bridge of Spies. Uh, the Martian, Crimson Peak, 
Steve Jobs, and Sicario. Are there any of those that you are curious about? Are you planning on actually catching up with all of these like mainstream movies? All of them? Good God, no. Well, but... you know, like the big ones, like uh, the Mad Max movie, I think you still haven't seen. I saw it. Oh, you did? I saw it on 4th of July. Okay. It's fantastic. Okay, good. It's the best movie of the year. Um, good, maybe good. it's the best movie of the year. It's mm-hmm. really good. Yeah, uh, it's, defi- um, it's definitely up there. Uh, so of the of these five, what what do you want to hear about? Uh, well, I the ones that I wa- the the one I want to see the most out of those is uh, Bridge of Spies because uh, I I'm a big fan of Spielberg. Particularly, I've I've really enjoyed his last string of what three or four or five movies that he's done. Uh, po- anything post Crystal Skull. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been really into um, War Horse, the, uh, Tintin, Lincoln. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three, I guess. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed all of those, um, and I, you know, I love the tradition of going to see the new Spielberg at the the multiplex. So uh, that's one I want to see. So how how is that one? It's really good. There you go. That's all I needed to hear. <laughs> it's uh, I di- I didn't like it as much as Lincoln. Like I really like Lincoln. It's one of my favorite Spielberg movies. Uh, it's really good. But it's uh, it's it's a it's a really kind of it's a. Uh, first of all, it's just like a solidly entertaining film. Like you know Tom Hanks going out there standing up for American values. Yeah, it's like it's it's very patriotic in the same way that that Lincoln is very patriotic. Um, but. Uh, it is at the, you know, Spielberg in, in these two movies, which is something that he wasn't really able to do earlier in his career, is able to be patriotic while at the same time, like seriously critiquing American institutions. I, Lincoln, you know, has this this kind of great vision of like the ideals of the the Gettysburg Address, and then spends two hours talking about all of like the the horrible kind of gritty. Uh, venality that actually drives American politics that that is what uh, enables uh, the president to achieve like this one thing that should be obvious if we actually believed in in what the the speech uh, talks about and it's a similar kind of thing in in Bridge of Spies where Tom Hanks is, is standing up for like the Constitution like the uh, the first half of the film is he's defending an accused spy because everyone has a constitutional right to a, you know, a competent defense. And uh, at every step of the way, he is frustrated by the legal system and by the bureaucracy that actually runs the country in, in the Cold War. And in the, the second half of the film, he's, you know, trying to do this, this very simple kind of humane thing, which is a, a prisoner exchange between, between the spy that we've caught and a spy that the Soviets have caught, uh, and at that same time, this you know very, very you know, what should be an easy negotiation, everybody gets something that they want, is complicated by all of these competing interests and kind of PR moves that the various agencies have to do in order to to justify their you know basic humane actions, right. So yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting line Spielberg is able to walk. Whereas something like Saving Private Ryan is just kind of stupidly patriotic. Uh, these these last two films are are much much better, 
And I think I think a, a lot of it has to do with the the screenplays that he's working from. Uh, the Lincoln screenplay is by is by Tony Kushner, who's just one of the greatest uh, uh, one of contemporary America's just greatest writers. Uh, and Bridge of Spies is co-written by the Coen Brothers, which yes. is a, a really kind of fascinating combination to mix up the <laughs> Coen Brothers with with Steven Spielberg. And there are there are like recognizable Cohen moments in the film, like little bit of little oddities and little uh, uh, you know weird looking people, weird interchanges, just you know this kind of all American uh, absurdity that the Cohens embrace at times uh, fits in surprisingly well with Spielberg's sense of humor. That sounds awesome, and yeah, yeah it, it's one I do really want to see. Um, which which one of the five that you saw was your favorite? Is, it 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 might be that it might be The Martian, which yeah. really which really surprised me because I am not a Ridley Scott fan at all, and I really liked The Martian, and it's uh, it's it's kind of cheesy, it's kind of silly, uh, but it's it's so fun and it's so kind of genuine in its belief in science that uh i i i really loved it yeah that's what i've heard from a lot of people and i i didn't really have you know i didn't read the book um which you know everybody's pretty much read by now um and you know i i also feel the same way i'm, I'm pretty ambivalent about ridley sky i don't have the vehement hatred uh, that you do for some of his films but i haven't seen gladiator so there you go yeah. um but yeah, uh, that, that that seems to be the consensus on that thing is is it's it's really good. So I should check that one out too. Yeah, it's like it's like the best possible version of Apollo thirteen. <laughs> the films are very similar in what they want to set out to do, but like where where Ron Howard is like constantly like subverting all of the good stuff in this movie with like cheesy sentimentalism, uh, Ridley Scott just just keeps it focused and on the process, and yeah. and I I really appreciate that. You know, I, I went into it expecting to to take the the stance that you know it's not as good as the De Palma's or John Carpenter's Mars movies from from fifteen years ago, and uh, you know it, it's as good as those yeah. Mission to Mars and, and Ghost of Mars, both of which I really like. Um, yeah, it's just as good. All right, yeah. you heard it I, here it's, first. It's it's, uh, it's Ridley Scott's best film since Alien. Well, hey. <laughs> That and that, you're not saying Prometheus, you're saying Alien. Yeah, since back <laughs> well, in 1979. Yeah, that's right. That's a long drought there. Yeah, and I, and, you know, I haven't seen all of Ridley Scott's films, but I've seen almost all of them, and uh, there are a few that I like. Yeah, yeah. Which is Gladiator the one you hate the most? Probably. I actually, I actually, uh, you know, I, I, I like Robin Hood more than most people. Like I found, uh, I found some good stuff in Robin Hood that I, that I, I kind of latched onto and, and really appreciated. There's some dumb stuff in it as well, but, uh, yeah. And Gladiator, I didn't hate as much watching it again, except, uh, for the ending, which is just the dumbest thing in movie history. <laughs> well once again i haven't seen it so i can't speak to that so yeah. <laughs> well let's talk about uh not the dumbest thing in movie history yeah 
Uh, let's talk about one of the best things in movie history. Yeah. Uh, Maureen O'Hara, who uh, passed away uh, last week um, on the 24th at age 95. Um, uh, and yeah, Maureen O'Hara, let's talk about her. Uh, what what can you what what can one say about Maureen O'Hara? Uh, well, I don't know. You picked her. Well, I, for for one thing, my my mom was named after her. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, she was a, a popular a popular actress in our in our house. Uh, she she is uh, kind of I think I think she's best remembered for her work with with John Ford. I think he gave her. Uh, her best roles, and and you know, uh, Francois Truffaut once said that that uh, he didn't really appreciate John Ford until he he kind of realized that he gave Maureen O'Hara some of the best roles of any uh, female actress in the studio era. Yeah, and and she really did. Uh, I mean, she did a lot of stuff beside that. I mean, I think you know the first thing I remember seeing her in was The Parent Trap. Where she's mm-hmm. the parent, mm-hmm. one of the parents, but I think I think the Ford stuff is really uh, what she'll be most remembered for. Uh, the Quiet Man, uh, uh, How Green Is Our Valley, uh, Rio Grande. Yes, I, I agree. I'm, I I feel exactly the same. Uh, those are the the ones that jump to mind most when I think of her. I've seen other movies with her in it. Like I, um, I've talked about the rare breed on the show, uh, mm-hmm. a later Jimmy Stewart film. Um, I don't really, but I don't, I don't remember her much from that. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's so great. Um, in the, in those Ford films, um, particularly I think in Rio Grande, uh, that's such, such a, such a meaty role uh and just i I, yeah it's she's really good (laughs) yeah uh i like uh she's in a couple of like pirate movies in the late 40s she's in sinbad the sailor and the spanish main uh spanish main is by uh frank borzeghi and uh let's see sinbad i think is uh uh, richard wallace who i don't know who that is but uh it's got douglas fairbanks jr and and those are are really fun movies too like i'm Someday I'm going to like go whole hog into the swashbuckling pirate genre that Hollywood did because nobody talks about it and and those movies are fascinating to me. But uh, yeah, yeah, uh, real grand. Uh, the Quiet Man. I think uh, I think her performance in in The Quiet Man is is her best and it's one of the best things. It's just, it's one of the best things. I've actually of all of the things that there are, it's one of the best. Well, that's the one I actually haven't seen because um, it was really hard to find for a long time. And then I've heard the Olive, uh, the new Olive release of it is like really bad. The transfer is really bad. No, uh, it's 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 terrific. Really? Oh, I heard. Yeah, I heard I the, someone... I the, the Blu-ray. It's great. The DVD was really poor, but the the Blu-ray is fantastic. Oh, I I had read contrary, so maybe I will check it out finally. Yeah, um, uh, I don't know. Some of those olive things are weird. Olive puts out a lot of really good stuff, but uh, the I've seen the quality be pretty hit or miss um, on some of that. Yeah, I'm uh, glad to hear that. That's that's yeah. one that I avoided solely on the fact that uh, I that it was supposed to be bad. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a uh, a Blu-ray expert, but I'm just looking here. Blu-ray.com gave it four and a half stars. Okay, 
Maybe I'm I'm misremembering. Maybe it was some some other Olive release, but yeah, could be. Uh, well, now that's jumping up to the top of my list because um, that's one that I've been wanting to see for ages. Yeah, let me say I'm pulling up the DVD beaver here. No, you don't need to do that. We're in the middle of a show here, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead and talk. Well, you've you've derailed. I'm just I'm looking at pictures of the Quiet Man Blu-ray, and it's it's really awesome. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. But this is an uh, this is a show of audio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Blu-ray ranks as an essential for all digital libraries. There isn't really much like it, and nothing made today can compare to it. We give this a wholehearted recommendation. All right. Well, I stand corrected. I swear. I. I mean, it must. There must have been some other recent olive here. Now I'm going to take the time to like look at all of the olive films that have come out in the last. No, no, we're talking about Marina here. Oh, oh, now, oh, now it's convenient for you. Yeah. I see. Uh, I will say that uh, the uh, the earliest of her films that I've seen is uh, The Hunchback of of Notre Dame from 1939. And I didn't, I didn't really think much of the movie. That's one with with Charles Lawton. Uh, in 1939, she was in two movies with with Lawton. She's also in uh, uh, Jamaica Inn, the Hitchcock pirate movie. Um, but the only real thought I had watch after watching Hunchback, uh, which was it's a fine movie, um, is that she was like the most beautiful woman in film history in that movie. I felt that way about Audrey Hepburn after watching Funny Face. Yeah, I yeah. walked out of that thing and I said, <laughs> "I said that those exact words." But uh, yeah. I haven't seen that one. I really do want to see that. Um, I actually want to see. I don't think I've seen any Hunchbacks uh, except for the Disney one, which is surprisingly really awesome. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it is an yeah. underrated Hunchback. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The Black Swan is another uh, Rain O'Hara pirate movie. She's in a lot of pirate movies. <laughs> Somebody really needs to do a study of uh, Maureen O'Hara's pirate films. I think you're the man for the job. Yeah. Uh, another good one she's in is uh, also with Charles Lawton, uh, directed by Jean Renoir, uh, called This Land is Mine, which is like a, a World War II uh, kind of propaganda film that Renoir made when he was uh, in exile in America. It's also got uh, George Sanders. Uh, that's a, a solid movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, acting with Lawton again and maybe you know just being in a movie with Charles Lawton makes her look prettier than she <laughs> normally does I don't I don't know it yeah. could be uh the long gray line is the one Ford film of hers that I haven't seen and I have it around here somewhere and I really should watch it because people rave about it a lot I haven't and, even uh, heard of it I haven't seen it it's about uh uh, a guy, it's like a, uh, like a biopic kind of thing about a guy's, uh, career at West Point and she plays like his wife or something, uh, starts Tyrone Power, who was, uh, also in, uh, the Black Swan, I think the pirate movie. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it's supposed to be one of, uh, one of like the, the underrated, Ford masterpieces that that people don't really talk about because it's hard to find on DVD. But uh, mm. I think it, it played on one of the movie channels a while ago, so I think I have it on the TiVo. But yeah, did you did you watch The Parent Trap growing up? 
Yeah, I've seen it. I mean, it's not, it wasn't uh, something that was on all the time, but I've definitely seen uh, the Haley Mills yeah. version. I haven't seen the Lindsay Lohan version, if, if that's no. what you're referring to. But yeah. Um, yeah, I have seen the Haley Mills Parent Trap. And I actually want to go back. I want to um, go into those, talk about diving into stuff. Those like 60s live action Disney movies, mm-hmm. you know, the Fred McMurray stuff. Like, those the, I have the Dean Jones movies. I, yeah, you know, I, mm-hmm. I want to dive into some of those because I, I I've seen a smattering of them, but it was all when I was five or six years old. So um, I'm kind of interested in checking those out. Yeah, we we watch that stuff all the time because it's that's what played on the Disney Channel in the '80s. In the same way that like ESPN showed showed sports highlights and MTV showed music videos, uh, Disney showed Disney movies. Right. So all of those live action things, like like the Shaggy Dog or the Absent Minded Professor, or just the the all of the Haley Mills movies, all of the uh, the movies where like there's a, like a monkey in a college or something. <laughs> uh, That's kind of my speed right about now. Yeah, that that was stuff that like I, I grew up watching, and uh, yeah, Haley, Haley Mills is uh, she's very important. Well, did you did you watch uh, the first season of Saved by the Bell? Yes, <laughs> I watched the I, I watched the the premiere of Saved by the Bell because Haley Mills was on it. Um, we've steered away from uh, the topic of this conversation, Sean, and moved into Haley Mills, which happens more often than not when I'm talking to you. But anyway, uh, the, the Parent <laughs> Trap was uh, was very 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 formative film because not only does it does it star Haley Mills, but but Maureen O'Hara. So I think, you know, I think if you can, like, combine those two women, you have, like, my ideal woman. And her name is Kim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and she's great. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that that's Maureen O'Hara. She lived a really long time. She was great. And now she's dead. And now she's dead. So. Other things that are dead are vampires. And this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Uh, uh, yeah, what's your what's your essential cinematic vampire? Uh, my essential cinematic vampire is uh, Martin, uh, which is he's actually not really a vampire, or is he? Mm. I, I ask you. Uh, Martin is uh, the star of the film Martin uh, from 1977, directed by George Romero. I saw it last year, and it is a fascinating, really interesting. Um, and very unique take on the vampire story. Um, Martin is a young man who uh, who thinks he's a vampire, and so he does vampire things like kill people and drain their blood and do stuff like that. But as far as we can tell, he doesn't have any actual supernatural powers. Um, and it's a really kind of lonely movie. Um, just about it's really about an outcasted kid. Um, who just kind of lives in his own head um, and the havoc that that wreaks. And it's, it's, it's really kind of beautiful. Um, and it's, I'm not super well versed in Romero's stuff. Um, I've seen, you know, some of the living dead stuff. Um, but this might be my favorite of his um, because it's so idiosyncratic. And um, I really haven't seen a movie like Martin before um, and it, and it, and it climaxes it builds this speaking of this is the week of movies that end really really well because uh, both the 
films we're talking about do. The end of Martin, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but um, it's something that kind of serendipitously fell into their lap and they, they took um, advantage of something that was taking place in the uh, real world um, to film a final scene. And it's really, really cool. Um, have you seen Martin, Sean? I, I have not. Martin's the only, really good. The only Romero films I've seen are like four of the Living Dead movies. That's pretty much all he's done. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Um, yeah, Martin came uh, in the in uh, year before at, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, um, and I don't think you know. Not a lot of people talk about. It. I think it's fairly hard to find. I, mm. I did get it at Scarecrow, but um, it is uh, it is a really cool, low key. Um, you know, like I said, horror is not my kind of genre for the most part, like, cause things tend to scare me and I don't like being scared. Um, but something like this, which is more of like a portrait of kind of dementia, um, spoke to me and, uh, it's cool. Right on. Uh, my pick is Maggie Chung. Ah, Irma Vep. Yeah. And I'll, uh, I'll tell you my thinking, like I, I wanted I didn't want to pick like a like Dracula or like a really obvious vampire, so I was thinking of like other vampires, and so I thought of uh, uh, the Louis Fiat serial uh, Le Vampire, uh, which uh, one of the main characters is Irma Vep, who is like this. Uh, Irma Vep is a an, an anagram of vampire, and she's like a villainous, and she like sneaks around in wearing all black and and uh, helps uh, carry out devious schemes. Uh, and then, so that made me think of, uh, the Olivia Sayas film, Irma Vep, which stars Maggie Chung and is about an attempt to, uh, create a remake of Le Vampire, uh, with Jean-Pierre Léaud as the director and Maggie Chung as the star. And, uh, though the weird thing is I, I kind of had this, this brainstorm that, uh, you know, you normally see the film as like a satire of the contemporary French film industry in, in 1996, which, which it is. But the, the interesting thing about it is as, as Maggie Chung uh, takes on the role and kind of gets more and more into it, uh, she starts acting like the character in her real life. Like she dons the costume in her hotel room at night and then like sneaks out onto the roof and sneaks into people's hotels and like starts stealing stuff, which is not something that an actress normally does. Um, unless you're Winona Ryder. Unless you're Winona Ryder. <laughs> but a boom. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I've always kind of interpreted that as just kind of like a, a silly kind of uh, commentary on like actors and their process, you know, method acting. Uh, but in, instead, I'm thinking that maybe she's actually like getting possessed by the spirit of this vampire. Like it's the role that's the vampire, and it's like taking over her body and making her do things. And in the same way that like Dracula takes over people and makes them do stuff, or the vampires in, uh, or the vampire, I guess in in Goki the the body snatcher does the same kind of thing. And in in looked at that way then just kind of the whole acting process and the lure of acting and becoming somebody else is a vampiric process and that made me think that maybe there that Irma Vep actually is a vampire movie because when Jean-Pierre Leo goes crazy uh towards the end of it it's he starts acting not uh, entirely unlike Renfield in the the Dracula story so I don't know if there's actually something there or if I'm just like crazy but I think that Maggie Chung in Irma Vep is a vampire you're crazy. Okay. Have you have you seen Irma Vep? <laughs> no, I haven't seen Irma Vep. Yeah. I really, really, really want to see Irma Vep. 
Um, and and now even more so because um, I there's some of those things you mentioned I didn't know about uh, like sneaking into the hotel rooms and that sounds totally awesome. Yeah, that's like the main draw of the film is 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 it's like the the scene you see in the poster is, is Maggie Chung in, in like the costume and it's like I think it's like if you ever see a clip from from Irma Vep, it's of Maggie Chung sneaking around hotels and yeah. It's really cool, and then and the way the film ends is like kind of the like the vampire. Con- it might be like the vampire kind of consciousness taking over the the world, as you know the the actual reality is is trumped by a cinematic reality that is kind of insane. Um, which which is a great segue for yeah. our next film. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a clip from Goki Body Snatcher from Hell. mysterious alien planet comes the most horrifying experience in motion picture history. Never before has such a frightening, oozing mass of stark terror crept across the screen. Body Snatcher from Hell. I don't want to die! I don't want to die! space comes this fiendish vampire satisfying his sinister and evil lust by feasting on the blood of his victims. So Goki Body Snatcher from Hell is kind of a vampire movie also. It's from 1968. It is Japanese. It's by director Hajimi Sato, who I don't know anything about. I don't think I've ever heard of him before. Uh, it, uh, it starts on an airplane. The airplane is, uh, is flying along. We meet the various passengers who form a, a kind of cross-section of Japanese society. Uh, then the sky turns orange, uh, birds start flying into the plane in order to kill themselves, and then the plane crashes, and once it crashes, there's a flying saucer that kind of draws in people, uh, opens a gaping wound in their head through which gray ooze oozes, and, uh, then it takes over the person and turns them into, like, a murderous, uh, zombie. Right. And as this is going on, the various uh, kind of uh, uh, political interactions between the various characters work themselves out as none of them are able to deal with the psychotic nature of their predicament crashed in a weirdly alien landscape with uh, a ooze zombie on the loose. 
So yeah, it's fun. <laughs> it's like uh, it's like Lost, but with uh, you know zombies. Yeah, um, yeah. This movie, th- there's a lot to like about this movie. Uh, there, um, I love how it just starts. I mean, it literally, <laughs> the plot starts from the very first frame. Like, there's no setup whatsoever it's like the pilots are flying the plane and they're like look the sky's blood red and then Mm -hmm. the sky's blood red and it's like here we go um and and then suddenly and and then i you know it's totally ridiculous but i i love that for no reason whatsoever they throw uh two of the characters you know like they they make one of them an assassin and then one of them like this kind of terrorist with a bomb like for like really no reason whatsoever (laughs) Uh, well, it's just kind of uh, just the, like the violence everywhere in right. the late in, in late sixties society. There's the Vietnam War going on. There's there's political assassinations. Like it's it's explicitly connected to the killings of of Martin Luther King and uh, and uh, Robert Kennedy in the U.S. Right, but but at the same time, like those plot elements of those characters, like the guy with the bomb, are for the most part like it's like a thread that just doesn't actually yeah it's 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 all it's all mood and and theme like right. it's, it's it's not really plot it's just crazy acts of violence are everywhere uh yes um and so there's something to say for that stuff but at the same time there, there's a lot of this that doesn't work um you know the the hammering of that theme um gets a, gets really uh annoying uh although i will say once again the ending which really goes to bat for the the theme i think actually works really well and if they hadn't alluded to that stuff earlier in the movie i think it would have worked even better um but uh yeah it's uh it's like a lesser version of invasion of the body snatchers which kind of which has a lot more going on in its in its paranoia and and kind of vision of of 1950s society in 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 that case um and but still has a very similar really darkly pessimistic ending like it's basically the same ending but invasion of the body snatchers has a lot more to it on the way there than this does which is more of kind of a, it's mostly just like a chamber drama with like terrible people and two decent people just trying to get by, almost like a like a Twelve Angry Men kind of vibe to it. Except it's it's more like, you know, five ter- terrible men and a, a nice two helpless women, a, ni- and a, some... ni- a nice guy and a stewardess. Uh, well, I do, you know, it it reinforces the the truth that you know politicians are the worst people on the planet but it also posits the new uh theory that flight attendants are the greatest people on the planet Um, i I don't think that that's new and in my experience (laughs) flight attendants are are pretty tremendous people um yeah well my problem with this movie is very similar to the problem with planet of the vampires uh where there's a lot of stupidity going on in terms of uh, moving the plot along, uh, because literally this movie, even more so than Planet of the Vampires, is let's get out of this airplane, 
Uh, oh, wait, there's a threat outside. Let's go back in the airplane. Now the threat's in the airplane. Let's get out of the airplane. It, mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally back and forth. And I know they do that because you need to break up the interiors. Um, well, but... yeah, there's one There's one set. Well, there's two sets. There's outside the airplane and inside the airplane. Right. Um, but the but the end of the movie, they actually... The, the reason the, the end of the movie is so great is <laughs> that... When they're escaping, when when finally the the two flight attendants uh, have escaped uh, the plane, they walk for like five minutes, and all of a sudden they're like they've reached civilization. There's like a street, yeah. and there's like, and and then they go, like I thought that was gonna be the end, but then there's like another five minutes where they go into like a city, and they see that everybody's dead. Um, and I wish that that had come way earlier, and there was like a little bit more of that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, it's a little too it's too little too late in terms of that. Um, yeah, it se- it seems much more interested in like the interpersonal di- dynamics of the scientist and the politician and the sycophant and like the drunk adulterous wife than it than it is in you know like the apocalyptic horror of what's going on. Um, while at the same time, it draws out the sci-fi sequences so long and. They're, they're really well done. Like it's it's really colorful. It's really uh, kind of spooky and eerie, and the the score is 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 great. Um, but they go on for so long, and they're kind of repetitive in that they kind of look the same every time. Yeah, I mean, and then it, you have like the this great kind of iconic special effect where like the hole opens up in the guy's forehead, and and the ooze crawls into it. Uh, it. They clearly like spent their entire budget on like this one effect. It's a really good effect, though. Yeah, it's a really, really good effect. Uh, and and the the model of their faces is really mm-hmm. lifelike. And uh, for 1968, it's really impressive stuff. Yeah, um, it's it's a more haunting image than anything in Planet of the Vampires. Right. Uh, you know, it is a forehead vagina. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, which hey. You know, the aliens got to get in there somehow. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's just a terrifying wound. Like, regardless of if it's uh, intended to be a vagina or not, it's it reminded <laughs> me more of like a, a David Cronenberg kind of thing. Like, a, I know I definitely thought yeah. of Cronenberg uh, in terms of that, you know, body horror kind of grossness going yeah. on there. Um, absolutely, definitely something out of Videodrome or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just wish uh, I wish the movie was willing to either a have more fun with its premise like and and I don't want to say be in on the joke like it doesn't have to be making fun it doesn't have to be disposable and trashy or whatever but if there was a little bit more lightheartedness to some of the the antics because I mean there's the unintentional hilarity of uh this mountain that they've traversed a couple of times seems to have a constant stream of avalanche going on where these rocks <laughs> yeah, are just it's, it's like, the same avalanche over and over again <laughs> which is and they and they leave that mountain for like 24 hours and then come back to it and there's still boulders like tumbling down it yeah. uh, i wish if the movie had embraced that side of itself maybe um i would have i would have had more fun with it more consistently or if it had uh maybe doubled down on um like you were saying, you know, maybe committing to one of its two tones that it was going for there. Yeah, I don't know. I I think the uh, the fact that the uh, the possessed bodies 
kill people in the manner of vampires by like biting their necks and sucking all of the blood out of them. I thought that was uh, that lacked explanation. It absolutely because <laughs> I don't think like a normal human can just like drain the blood out of a person. So there has to be like you know something physiologically going on with like their teeth. Well, no, but what's that. even funnier is that one of the I think the last time he does that to somebody, um, he you you even see like his lips on her neck. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, all he's doing is just kissing her gently. <laughs> like it's, it's really like actually kind of sweet what, like, <laughs> what he's doing there. Um, clearly not extracting any fluids um, yeah. from that process. But uh, I but there are moments of this that I think are really effective. Like you said, like the the uh, you know the ooze going into the the wound. Um, I actually really like when the alcoholic wife of the uh, arms dealer or whatever he is um, gets possessed um, where they kind of fake you out because you see her on the top of the mountain uh, and she's not facing the camera. And so you expect her to turn around and to have the same uh, gash in her forehead. Uh, but she turns around and she's actually p- possessed by the spirit to, to transmit this um, kind of their intentions of what they, they plan on doing. Right. Um, and I think that seems really effective, uh, especially once she once they're done with her body and they throw her off the cliff and she turns into like a body of dust. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, um, that's cool stuff. And the 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 vibe of the whole film, this kind of the the apocalyptic nature of it is is really, really cool. The uh, the the blood red sky in the in the opening is really horrifying with all of like the birds that just like suddenly fly into the window. Yes. That's, that's, that's good stuff there. That's, it's far beyond like there's, there's paranoia in the 50s sci-fi films, but this is beyond that. It's, it's like, it's really, it's like true horror. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, if I wasn't alive in 1968, I'm not, I'm not quite that old, but I, from what I know of that year, this seems to capture the feeling of what the world was like in 1968. Yeah. <laughs> like this seems like a realistic future. Right. From what was going on then. And that is, that is a valuable thing. <laughs> yes. Do you have anything else to say? No. Well, with that, that's our discussion of Goki, <laughs> uh, Body Snatcher from Hell. Um, and we're oh, hear... oh, one one thing. Uh, he's not a Body Snatcher from Hell. No, no, he's not. The, the Goki Medora are a Body Snatcher from Space. Yeah. Well, so what's up like with Planet, that? It's like Planet of the Vampires not having any vampires. These these were two very misleading titles this week yeah, on the George Sanders show. Very, very, we were, we very were disappointing. Bamboozled. Yeah. We've been hoodwinked. We were Shanghai'd. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's that. Uh, we are going to turn our attention to uh, an appropriately titled song uh, from the band Lightning Bolt. Uh, this is off their second record, uh, and it's called Dracula Mountain.
thanks, Lightning Bolt, uh, for that jolt of uh, noise rock there. <laughs> uh, uh, next time on the show, we're sticking with our 1965 theme because uh, we're way, way behind on getting caught up for the end of the year wrap up stuff. We really are. Uh, so we're going to talk about, uh, you know, it's going to be Veterans Day around that time. So we're going to talk about Heroes of Telemark and Major Dundee on the show. Looking forward to both of those. Yeah, that's uh, uh, Anthony Mann and Kirk Douglas for Heroes of Telemark and uh, Sam Peckinpah and Charlton Heston for Major Dundee. Which so, one would you put your money on in a uh, steel cage match? Uh, I think Kirk Douglas takes Charlton Heston, but Sam Peckinpah would beat yep. the shit out of Anthony yep. Mann. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Peckinpah plays dirty. Yeah. Real dirty. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, actually, this isn't really the meantime because this is going to be happening uh, right around the time we record uh, that show. But uh, the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto, uh, California, is going to be doing a really cool looking series um, all through like mid-November to the end of December and it's uh, Fox studios through 1935. Um, and so they're going to be showing all kinds of stuff, including um, silent Sundays where they'll show stuff such as sunrise uh, song of two humans, uh, the iron horse from John Ford, um, but also a ton of other stuff. Steam road, uh, steamboat around the bend, Connecticut Yankee uh, power and the glory, all kinds of stuff uh, are playing at the Stanford theater. And, uh, you should totally go because that place totally rules. Steamboat on, around the bend. You said, you said Steamboat around the bend. That's what I said. Yeah, that movie is really cool. <laughs> uh, it, it yeah, uh, that's playing November thirteenth and fourteenth, um, and uh, yeah, it's it sounds like a great series. And I'm actually going to be down there for Christmas this year, so maybe I can sneak down there and see a couple of things at the Stanford Theater. Good on. Well, also in the Bay Area, but I think in the uh, in the uh, on the opposite side of of the Bay is uh, an Orson Welles series at the Smith Raphael Film Center in San Rafael, which uh, I believe it's San, is... it, it's San Rafael. Really? Yes. It says Raphael. It, it it's pronounced. I I lived there for twenty that's, years. That's dumb. <laughs> Anyway, uh, they're doing an Orson Welles series. Uh, they started they started last week with Chimes at Midnight, so I already missed that. Uh, but coming up... Uh, Which is 1965, by the way. Yes, and it's amazing. Uh, yes. Coming up on, on Thursday, November 4th, is a 35mm print of Confidential Report, which is one of the many versions of Mr. Arkadin, which is one of Welles' most fascinating films. Uh, they're doing a bunch of other stuff, The Trial, The Mortal Story. Uh, coming up on November 15th, I know you'll like this, is a 35mm print of F for Fake. Yeah. Which is arguably Wells' best movie. So, you know what would be awesome? Is hmm. if they ran it on digital, but they said it was 35. <laughs> that, that would be appropriate. Uh, the, the series concludes on uh, on the 22nd of November with, with Touch of Evil, which I think is Wells' best movie. Uh, but yeah, definitely go check it out at the, uh, what is that, in Marin County? Uh yeah 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 California Film Institute the Smith Raphael Film Center <laughs> yes sure sounds good yeah uh that's awesome yeah. uh, I think that's a I think that Wells thing is traveling around I think it's the Wells 100 thing I think they're yeah. doing that at some other places yeah yeah um, but this is where it is now on the show 
Well, it'd be great if it came to Seattle. It won't. I know. Uh, what will come to Seattle is a whole bunch of stuff that you can read about at www.seattlescreenscene.com, uh, which is where we used to write about stuff, and then we got lazy and we don't. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I wrote like 2,500 words this week. I know you did. Yeah. Um, you haven't written shit since Vancouver. It's like halfway through Vancouver. You haven't written a word. Well, I've been right. I yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's true. Um, it was all that tweeting, man. The tweeting yeah. sucked the life yeah, out of me. Definitely. Um, so yeah, so there's that Seattle screen scene. You can find more about this show at the George Sanders Show We're on Twitter at Geo Sanders Show, and we have an email at the George Sanders Show at gmail I think that's it. That is probably it. Okay, so uh, trick and or treat, and uh, we'll see you next time on The George Sanders Show. Here's George. A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you on that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die 